Hey y'all, thank y'all for tuning in to Black Girl True Crime. I am your host, Key Simone, and this episode is part two of the Freeway Phantom case. Before I get into it, if you got on Spotify or Apple and you saw that I posted an episode that was like five minutes, just know Anchor had me fucked up and I have corrected it. So now it has been republished. And the Freeway Phantom Part 1 is up on platforms. It's about, what, an hour and 15 minutes long. I just wanted to let y'all know that, just in case. And when I left y'all, we had five young black girls who had just been slain by an unidentified killer in Washington, D.C., in Maryland. Now, I had covered Carol Denise Spinks, Darlene Denise Johnson, Brenda Faye Crockett, Nino Yates, and Brenda Denise Woodard. They had a lot of things in common, rape, abduction, green fibers, and black textured hair really connected these cases. Brenda Denise Woodard had been stabbed and Darlene Denise Johnson was too decomposed to determine her cause of death. I personally think that was due to the incompetence of the Washington MPD. Now I do wanna make a correction to something that I had said in part one. I know I was ripping these officers, I was eating them alive, but I gotta make sure I got my facts straight. So I said in part one that the children in the neighborhood of Congress Heights said a man was exposing himself to them. I said the police didn't do shit about it, but that isn't true. While I was researching for part two, I did come up on something that the girls were requested to come down to the station to get a sketch of this man. Now, once their statements had been collected and the sketch was drawn, it was said that it produced a man who looked foreign, possibly Hispanic or Indian. Now, this man was never located, and it is still unknown if he is, if he is responsible for the girl's death. So I just wanted to clear that up for you guys. I want to make sure I'm always giving accurate information. And in times that I don't, if I catch myself, I'm going to let y'all know. I'm not even going to hold y'all. It's Saturday night. <laughs> I'm, I'm in this place by myself. I have poured myself something to drink as I have this conversation with y'all. And if you are listening and you, you can do that too, I suggest you go ahead and get you something because this case is a doozy. Part two is a doozy just like part one. And have me spiraling down the rabbit hole to hell with all these emotions and everything going on. But as we know, the world is fucked up. Let's talk about it. All right, so before I dive right into this episode, major trigger warning due to child abduction, rape, and murder. If these topics aren't settling to you, I understand. It is best that you skip this episode and catch me next time. When I left off part one, it was with the rape and murder of Brenda Denise Woodard. A note was left inside her coat pockets and the residents, they were really trying to figure out what the fuck was going on. Washington Homicide did not release the note because uh, they wanted to keep it close to the chest so they withheld it from the public. I'm gonna read this note again. Now, now's a good time to say if you have not listened to part one, Go ahead and listen to it and then come back to this episode so you know what's going on. In the note, it said, This is tantamount to my insensitivity to people, especially women. 
I will admit the others when you catch me if you can. Last line said freeway phantom. So we have this note and everything is still a shit show. The letter really didn't give detectives an idea of who the freeway phantom was. I mean, as time went on, there were small leaks in regards to the letter and that only added on to the confusion. Women were even scared. Like at the funeral of Brenda Denise Woodard, some women were concerned to write their names down in the attendance book if their first or middle name started with a D. This man really had the city terrified. So for 10 months, there were no murders. And this length of time, it, it was referred to as a cool down period. He basically took like a little hiatus. I looked this up, cool off periods are basically when an offender goes back to his or her normal way of life. I think Brenda Denise would have beat his ass and sat him down for a little while. Brenda fought. None of these girls were going out without a fight, but Brenda shook this man so hard, like he stabbed her to death. They went outside of his typical pattern. In all of these murders, he goes for strangling. And in this case, he stabbed her to the point of where it was overkill, stabbing her even after she had died. So yeah, she sat his ass down for a little bit, but he did come back to abduct another young girl, Diane Dennis Williams. So it is now September 5th, 1972. Diane picked up her paycheck and she went with her family. They went to go shopping at Sears. The whole day, Diane was vibrating with happiness. She even offered to paint the stair walls in their two-story home. Diane's mother, Margaret Williams said, all that day, Diane seemed very happy. So they finish shopping. Diane goes and takes a little nappy nap. She gets up, makes her family dinner. She made them fr uh, fried chicken, potatoes, and rice with gravy, which sounds so damn good. I'm hungry. <laughs> so while they're all eating dinner, her boyfriend calls a little boo thing and says he has some new records and wanted to know if Diane could come over. Margaret was hesitant to let her go. Basically said, go ask your daddy, see what he says. Eventually, her parents agreed to go as long as she promised to be back home by 1030. I, I just want to point this out. You know how when, when we were younger, those little threats, you know, your parents threaten you with, within an inch of your life. If you're not back home on time, just to express the importance of coming home the way you left. Margaret Williams said Diane borrowed some change for bus fare, and she remembered telling her, if you are not back by 1030, don't bother coming back. Black people, we know she meant no harm, and we know that if she had known that that was the last time she saw her baby, it would have been different. Margaret also said that was the last time I, I talked to her or saw her alive. So like all the other young girls, Diane Dennis Williams was not the type to get into a car with someone she didn't know. All of these babies were incredibly cautious. Williams had lived with her family on Halley Terrace in the neighborhood of Congress Heights for the past three years. A little bit more about Diane. She was born to Margaret and Leon Williams around February 2nd, 1955, and just described as sweet and shy. Her mother, Margaret, said she always knew where she was, stating that Diane never really went anywhere, but was popular where she worked. Now that was at the Department of Recreation at Savoy Elementary School, and she was working there as a recreational aide. 
At 17 years old, Diane was also killing it. Absolutely stunning. I will be posting pictures on Insta. The Lord molded her hair himself. You will be in awe. So she had dreams of becoming a model. Diane also enjoyed drawing. Leon, her father, described his daughter as a bright student. Diane's aunt said, and this is heartbreaking, she had said she wanted to be a model. She had the shape and beauty for that. Her father had put aside education money for college. Her education money was cashed in to bury her. I hate it. I hate it. Diane and her sisters had just been baptized, and she was planning on attending Blue Senior High School uh, for 11th grade. Diane did have some moments of depression, uh, depression due to medical issues that I will not put into this episode. If you want to find that information, it is on the internet somewhere. Despite those moments of depression, Diane was known for being fearless and very active in her community. She was a member of the Youth Center at Bowling Air Force Base, as well as a member of a social group at Assumption Church. Now, when it comes to how Diane is portrayed in these articles, I'm going to give y'all all of the information, but I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going off of the accounts of the people who know and love her. A newspaper claimed Diane would go to local bars and nightclubs. What the fuck does that have to do with anything? I also previously read Diane would walk alone at night and was known to trust people in general. Again, what the fuck does that have to do with anything? It was also said Diane did not always tell her mother where she was going. Margaret said she knew her child's whereabouts and that Diane never really went anywhere. She, like, like I said earlier, she said that she was uh, popular where she worked, but she always knew where her daughter was going. She shot down claims that her daughter was in bars and nightclubs. She said what the fuck she said, and we are going to leave it at that. So it is past 1030 now. Diane still has not come home. Leon is trying to reason with Margaret, basically calming her down, telling her everything is going to be okay. Diane is going to be home soon. 11 p.m. rolls around and there is still no sight of Diane. Margaret goes and calls Diane's boyfriend, James. And this is a quote from Margaret. She said, when he said he had escorted Diane to the bus stop and waited until she boarded the bus over an hour ago, the nightmare that later turned into reality began. An hour later, James telephoned me and learned that Diane had still not arrived home. To avoid false alarm, I didn't telephone Leon at work. I sat alone and wondered what happened to Diane. The anger that I had felt because she had not kept her promise to me turned into anxiety and anger. September 6, 1972 comes. A tractor-trailer driver stops on the interstate, interstate of 295. This was between the district line and Capitol Beltway, and he needed to check his equipment. He noticed the body of a young black female laying face down. She was eight feet off the shoulder. During this time, Leon Williams had gotten off of work and was passing by the discovery of his daughter. He, he just didn't know that it was Diane. The driver who discovered her notified Armed force, uh, Forces Police around 8.04 a.m. The Armed Forces uh, Police notified Maryland State Police in Floresville due to jurisdiction issues. Leon Williams arrives home to find out that Diane still has not made it back. 
he immediately contacts the Metro PD to report her missing. So back at the scene with Diane, Lieutenant Richard Stallings, he's with the Maryland State Police and he's the first person to make it to the scene. He goes and calls up Deputy Police Chief Malone Pitts, who was leading the Phantom Division for Prince George's County. At the scene, Diane was lying with her hands at her sides. She was wearing a gold sweater, blue jeans, and white sneakers, which had the word Diane written on the back of one of them. She had her shoes, but her shoelaces were missing. Diane's autopsy revealed her cause of death, which was manual strangulation. She had a small bruise on her ribs and abrasions on her left elbow. Fingernail impressions were found on her neck, and it was estimated that she had been deceased for 9 to 20 hours before she was discovered. Semen, along with brown, Caucasian, and black textured hair, was all collected from her body. But as far as the Caucasian hair, the police did the same damn thing as they did with, uh, before with Brenda Woodard. They suspected that the Caucasian hairs came from the detectives who had worked at the scene. They didn't collect the hairs. They just assumed. Green synthetic fibers were found on the inside of her bra. I need to make a note of this because after her autopsy, Diane is taken over to Mason's funeral parlor. The mortician is preparing this baby's body and notices evidence that had not been found during her autopsy. This mortician found semen and black textured hair in Diane's mouth. I hate it. I hate it. The mortician was adamant that pathology tests be made the night before evidence um, would be destroyed by the embalming fluid. Allegedly, James, her boyfriend, admitted to having sexual intercourse, but this information has not been proven by detectives, and it is also... <laughs> I searched high and low for some information on this. This boy has not admitted to having oral sex with Diane. And still to this day, it is unclear on if the DNA that was recovered from her mouth was the same DNA that was recovered from her vaginal area. It's, it's frustrating. Now, Diane's parents, they were invited to Baltimore by Detective Robert Granham, who was with the Maryland State Police. On this day, they... They, they go to the city morgue and they identify their daughter, Diane. And while they are at the morgue, their other children, the babies are at home. Before they can make it back to tell them what had happened to Diane, the media was already flashing Diane's picture. They saw that their sister had been brutally murdered through the TV. These babies lost it. People who know this family know that these children are well-mannered and shy and and quiet but they lit this neighborhood up with how inconsolable they were and their parents weren't even there to console them you think you can't get worse from here the williams family began to receive sinister calls the person would say i killed your daughter along with random ass prank calls where a person would call in, ask for Diane by name, and then hang up. Fuck y'all. Like, like really. It, it's sickening. The police did interview a witness who last saw Diane. He was the bus driver named Warren Williams. They conducted an interview that lasted about six, almost six hours. 
He claimed that Diane had gotten off the bus at 19th and Benning. He claimed that she was with two men. These men were tracked down and couldn't provide any information. As far as what Warren Williams has to say, Romaine Jenkins said that shit don't make sense. Two plus two getting 14, this shit ain't adding up. That, not a real quote, but still. It, it wasn't making sense to Romaine Jenkins because it made no sense for Diane to get off at 19th Street when 21st Street was closer to her home. If Diane had gotten off near 19th Street by Halle Terrace, she would have had to cross a dark parking lot to get home. And this six-hour interview led them nowhere. But let's say that this bus driver was correct and Diane got off the bus with these two men. You mean to tell me that the police questioned Mr. Williams, Warren Williams, the bus driver, for upwards of six hours, and then the two boys who would have last seen her alive, all y'all can say is that they weren't helpful? Was there extensive research into this? Still, unclear. Let's take a moment to talk about the families. Within hours of some of these deaths, the families who had also lost their daughters to the freeway phantom, they would go to their homes just to give shoulders to cry on and words of encouragement. Let me give y'all a quote from Brenda Crockett's mother. When interviewed, Retha said, let me tell you something. They've taken my baby. People have said to me, I know how you must feel, but they really don't know. They didn't lose a child like that. If mine is dead and yours is dead, then we can understand each other. It's simple as that. Mary Woodard, who is the mother of Brenda Denise Woodard, learns about what happens to Diane, and they go on over to Leon and Margaret Williams' house. Mary said, and I quote, It was sad when we arrived. The family sat around the living room almost in a daze. I introduced myself, and I put my arms around Mrs. Williams, and I don't remember either of us saying anything for a few seconds, end quote. So they, they chit-chat, and they just swarm this family with love, and, and, you know, they just try to rally around them. This was a very dark time. Margaret Williams said, I was crying, and the hug was comfort without words. I had been going through the motion of doing things without anything really sinking in. But Mrs. Woodard reassured me and let me know I wasn't the only one. I love it. I love that. They, they needed that. Just these families, like you, you don't know this woman. You, you hear what happens to her daughter. Immediately head on over there, introduce yourself and just give comfort. Black women, they had a village. So on Tuesday, September 12th, 1972, Diane was laid to rest in a pale blue coffin covered in flowers. The number of visitors was so big that her viewing, it took place on two different days. And that was the Sunday and Monday evenings um, before her funeral, which was on Tuesday. And so massive, the names of the visitors filled up seven books. Diane's family, they let James, her boyfriend, and poor baby, can, can we also take a note of what James was possibly going through? This, his girlfriend, his baby boo, the fact that he, he just wanted to hang with his girl and show her these records and never saw her again. It's just, but they, they let him ride in the family car 
for her funeral procession, and it is noted that this act of kindness brought him to tears. During her funeral, Jennifer Woodard, the 16-year-old sister of Brenda Woodard, this 16-year-old baby reads this letter, and it just really talks to her mental and emotional intelligence, just having to come to terms with what is going on. So the letter said, I know that all the sympathy cards and notes of condolence in the world cannot erase away any portion of the pain that you must feel at this moment. Some people can only guess about how it must feel to lose someone very close in such a violent way, but I do not guess, I know. I was the first one of my sisters and brothers to find out about my sister Brenda's death. It was a moment of numbness. My whole world seemed to have shattered before me. The only thing I could say was, why couldn't it have been me? A big part of living includes accepting the bad with the good, but why in God's name does such a large part of it have to be bad? One day, and I hope very soon, this insane maniac will be found. But until then, I hope and pray that another innocent girl will never fall in the hands of such evil and purposeless death. Whew. Excuse me. Heavy. Heavy. All right, y'all. Diane is resting peacefully at Arlington National Cemetery. She's located there because her father is a 20-year vet with the Army Quartermaster Corps. So now we have six young black girls who have been brutally murdered by this freeway phantom. And I, I, have, I have another quote for y'all. So Cassandra Williams, she said, my sister's death, uh, death destroyed my whole impression of Washington and it affected the whole family psychologically. It messed up my schooling for three years. People kept asking me, are you Diane Williams' sister? And the whole thing would flash again in my head. I began to hate Washington and to regret that we ever moved here from El Paso. And then uh, Patricia Williams, uh, who is another sibling, she joined the Metro PD in October of 1982 with a goal to help solve the freeway phantom case. Again, I say when black women. The Washington MPD added an additional 30 men to assist Maryland State Police and the FBI during the investigations. The reward for information rose to over $9,000 and more than 1,000 people were interviewed. Still don't know who the freeway phantom is. During this time, outrage mixed with helplessness and these families having to rally around each other for, for comfort while detectives figured this shit the fuck out. And sometimes it was with piss poor efforts. And no, I'm not just blowing smoke out my ass, y'all. So in part one, I talk about jurisdiction lines, specifically with Brenda Denise Woodard. And when it came to these jurisdiction lines, the men, they, they would get to puffing their chests out. So what ends up happening is the Maryland State Police transferred the investigations to Prince George's County Homicide and rape cases went to Prince George's County Police Department. Maryland State Police said they didn't have the manpower, but you know folks get to talking and chit-chatting, get a little messy, and there were rumors that the real issue was professional jealousy. I love me a good Google search. <laughs> I just wanted to look it up. 
Professional jealousy is defined as the constant envy of goal-oriented people or others' prosperity. Y'all got this shit going on while six black girls have been brutally raped and murdered. And this bullshit is very clear in the way that they handled Brenda Denise Woodard. I mean, baby girl was lying in the grass, wig in the fucking street. Mama is passing by um, trying to catch another bus because this commotion is holding the buses up, not even knowing that it's her daughter that everyone is crowded around. And these departments are just arguing over who will process the crime scenes just to go on and end up botching this shit completely. Fuck them and fuck that. And that's just where I will leave it. November 19th, 1972, a call comes in to the Phantom Hotline. And boy, is this shit some tea. The caller said, I've got some information for you. To which the operator said, well, what is it? This person says, when you find the phantom, you'll be surprised because the phantom wears a police uniform. And the line went dead. Let's get into these fucking suspects. I am going to kick this off by telling y'all about Edward Selman and Tommy Simmons. Before I get too deep, they're going first because I spent seven straight hours researching these two men. It all started with a TikTok that I had put on my personal account. If y'all wanna know who your host is, yeah, you can go follow me. I go by Simone 93 and I'll plug it at the end as well. But I had posted a short video about Darlene Denise Johnson, her story, what happened to her, and comments came in. Almost everybody said it's the fucking police. The police had something to do with this. And at first I wasn't sure, but I dedicated a good grip of time. So I ain't spend all these hours researching this shit to not talk about it. So let's get into it. In February of 1971, these two men raped a 27-year-old waitress. Allegedly, they had picked her up and brought her to Maryland. June 28th of 1971, while driving in Selman's Volkswagen, uh, they saw a woman standing on the street corner. They kidnapped this lady at gunpoint and raped her before releasing her. July of 1971, they abducted and raped and murdered 14-year-old Angela Denise Barnes. Now, Angela Denise Barnes was initially included in my research when I began writing out part one. I removed her when I read that her case was not related. I was very shocked when I continued my research to find out that Edward Selman and Tommy Simmons were two former officers for the District of Columbia. They had uh, joined the force in 1970 and remained until 1971. They resigned together after talks of disciplinary action over a missing .38 revolver. See, they, they tried to lie and they said that Simmons' home was broken into, but these idiots <laughs> did not take into account that there was no sign of forced entry. But magically, after they realized that they were in deep shit, the weapon was found in the front seat of an unattended police car. Let's fast forward to 1974. The wife of Edward Selman, sick of her husband's shit, she had suspected that he had been responsible for Angela's murder. 
this lady calls the fucking police. Under their instruction, she initiated a call to her husband while he was at work. Told this man that the FBI had called to ask her about his involvement with Angela's murder. He lost his shit and got hemmed up right then and there. Selman was arrested and Simmons confessed and later actually testifies against Selman later in court. Um, Selman tries to go through some uh, appeal proceedings and I will be posting links to all this information. So it is important to note that human blood was found in Selman's vehicle and could not be linked to Angela. Simmons was convicted of Angela Denise Barnes' death and he was sentenced to 20 years to life. Edward Selman did receive uh, similar uh, to the same sentence that um, Simmons did. Now, the freeway phantom is said to have lived close to where the victims lived. And it was so tough finding out more information about these men. But as I mentioned before, Selman owned a Volkswagen. I do understand these vehicles were common and witnesses described all different types of cars, blue Volkswagens among other vehicles. Many of these tips led nowhere but evidence is evidence. The tire print next to Nino Yates' body was that of a Volkswagen. She was last seen getting into a Volkswagen. And the abduction of Carol Denise Spinks, a, a witness said two black men jumped out of a Volkswagen. And that night, that same witness received threatening calls and then recanted what she said. The man who discovered Nino Yates said a Volkswagen was parked on the side of the road and there were two people in it. Now, by the time I was done researching all this, um, I had two addresses. And like I said, the freeway phantom would have lived in, in the area close to Congress Heights or close to it. Selman, he lived at the 5900 block of 14th Street Northwest, and Simmons lived at the 4800 block of St. Barnabas Road in Temple Hills. Selman lived approximately 35-ish minutes away from the neighborhood of Congress Heights. Simmons, however, lived six minutes away from Congress Heights and about 10 minutes from Angela Denise Barnes. When Carol Denise Banks, who was the first victim, when she crossed that district line into Maryland to head on over to that 7-Eleven, she was about two point miles away from him. Ultimately, the police uh, concluded that these men had nothing to do with the freeway uh, phantom killings. So now we have the Green Vega Rapists. Basically, this was just a group of punk ass bitches running around attacking women in Washington, D.C. and surrounding uh, Maryland vicinities. These men were arrested and they began to serve their sentences at Lorton Prison in Virginia. And at some point they start to get interviews and, you know, they think that maybe talking will lighten their sentences. What deals are on the table? These boys get to talking and a lot of the shit was incorrect. But one inmate said he would talk and his only request was remaining anonymous. He provided information on the crime, the dates, and exact locations, as well as who gave him the information. He had talked about shit that hadn't even been released to the public and provided accurate descriptions, while also proving that he wasn't involved by providing a verifiable alibi. Whew, the police were on their way to get written statements 
from this man so they can present it to a grand jury because this man clearly knew something. And let me tell you how the lives of these young girls didn't mean shit to the people in positions of power. So an election is uh, going on in Maryland. Now the state attorney for Prince George's County released to the public that there was a break in the freeway phantom case and an inmate at Lorton Prison was providing the information. This, this, this man, of course he denies that he jeopardized the case, but I call bullshit. It's all bullshit. Cause after this happened, cause that inmate was watching the news when this information popped up, he immediately declined further interviews, stopped talking and denied that he had ever provided information. And he was providing some good shit, y'all. And police were able to, for the first time, positively identify the scenes where some of these crimes were occurring. But now we don't know. Because, unfortunately, the, the other boys, the green uh, Vega rapists, they were spitting bullshit. The shit wasn't adding up. This was the one person that they could possibly figure this shit out with. And... He, his lips are shut. He's not saying anything else. So now, last suspect that I am going to mention is Robert Askins. So Robert Askins is a black male and was roughly 220 pounds and six feet tall in 1977. Robert was 58 years old in March of that year when he was charged with abducting and raping 23-year-old Gloria McMillan inside of his Washington, D.C. home which was located at 1700 M Street Northeast. But let me tell you how the criminal justice system is trash. This wasn't the first time that he had been charged with a crime. Definitely wasn't the first time. In the late 30s, he served cyanide-laced whiskey to five prostitutes at a brothel, resulting in the death of 31-year-old Ruth McDonald. Two days after that, he stabs 26-year-old Elizabeth Johnson to death and proclaimed to the police that he was a woman hater. Robert Askins wasn't just a sick fuck. He used to be a police informant, aiding law enforcement in the arrest of prostitutes. Like, what the fuck is that? That, there, that there's a whole division that <laughs> arrests prostitutes. I, I, will never, I will never understand how sex work just makes these men lose their fucking minds. But he was declared criminally insane and was committed to St. Elizabeth's Hospital. Now, this was in 1939. He was released by 1954, and five months in to being free, he strangles 42-year-old Laura Cook to death. Askins was indicted for the murder of Laura Cook and for several other assaults, and was also retried for a murder he committed in 1938. Askins was only sentenced to 20 to life, and that conviction was overturned in 1958. He's back out again. July 8, 1976, he kidnapped, raped, and held 25-year-old Martina Stewart hostage. And he, he did this while under the disguise of being a police officer. He held Martina for a couple of days before eventually letting her leave. Martina flags down the first police car that she sees and tells them that she has been kidnapped and raped. The officers were so cold and unconcerned 
that she immediately was just like, okay, fuck this. She flags down a taxi and goes on to go uh, head over to Washington General Hospital. Luckily, at the hospital, she's taken seriously by the police who interview her and she gets the help that she needs. Skipping over to 1978, police are thinking that Askins might be the freeway phantom. And they're searching his house. They find these documents in one of his drawers. With, and there was a word that stuck out. The word was tantamount. And they interview people who know him. And they said that tantamount was a word that he used often. Now, this info is ringing like sweet bells to the detectives because the note that was left inside of Brenda Denise Witter's coat said tantamount on it. So we have this man who has already proclaimed that he has a hatred for women. Um, he has a violent criminal past and also has some of the Freeway Phantom trademarks. The Freeway Phantom bathed some of his victims. And as we know, he did force uh, Brenda to write that note. Robert Askins bathed Gloria McMillan after brutally assaulting her. And I also did read that he forced one of his victims to write a note as well. Now, you would think that we have our guy. He was never linked to the Freeway Phantom case and died while serving his prison sentence. And this prison sentence was for his latest crimes. He died in, tw in 2010. When we think about it, forensic DNA testing is already being used by 2010. I think um, forensic DNA testing was developed in the late 80s. We have to keep in mind that so much evidence was um, not properly stored and files were destroyed. So they probably had nothing to test Askin's DNA against, to be quite honest. And it sucks because, I don't know, that tantamount, it seems pretty solid. So I'm going to tell y'all what I think. <laughs> I think these agencies who took part in these investigations knew who murdered these young girls. I mean, picking and choosing what DNA is tested, um, them destroying files and evidence, picking fights with other jurisdictions over who gets the body. I think Selman and Simmons had access to information that would have made it very easy to locate the families and the witnesses and intimidate them through phone calls. I also think Simmons lived so close to the neighborhood of Congress Heights that on the day that Carol Denise Spinks was abducted off Wheeler Road, he very well may have been worried that her mother might have seen him and possibly noticed him, like recognized him. And he lived around the fucking corner. I also think that a police officer would understand that by dropping these bodies in these different jurisdictions is gonna be a fucking problem. It, it really makes investigations much harder and so confusing. Ultimately, the identity of the free Freeway Phantom remains a mystery, and yes, it is frustrating. Now, Romaine Jenkins said, and I quote, I think what has happened is the community has forgotten and the police department has forgotten. Most people in the homicide unit now would know nothing at all about the Freeway Phantom, end quote. And it really stinks because one of the mothers of the girls, she would also quote that we are a forgotten community. Well, I'm here to remind y'all and a lot of other um, podcasts and there's news sources and stuff out here. TikTok is ablaze with the freeway phantom. These conversations are happening and I really hope 
that we get more information about what happened to the evidence, who's being held accountable for the destruction of the evidence. But I'm going to end this eh, just to talk about the girls. I mean, as far as Carol Denise Banks, Darlene Denise Johnson, Brenda Faye Crockett, Nina Moshe Yates, Brenda Denise Woodard, and Diane Denise Dennis Williams, they all deserved better. They all deserved just more care when it came to their cases. And we will continue to say their names. So beautiful black babies, I mean, with dreams and goals, so loved and cherished by their families who continue to show up for each other. If you know anything or you know anyone who might know something, whatever you have, there, there may be a reward for you if you can provide evidence that can bring a face to the phantom. I'm going to give y'all some information. Contact Metro Police at 202-727-9099 or send an email to unsolved.murder at dc.gov. I, I mean, I don't want to say that we may not ever know who the freeway phantom is. We have to keep hope alive for these beautiful black babies. So this is the conclusion of part two of the freeway phantom. Honestly, fuck him, fuck the police, and fuck whoever is caping for this man. I hate it. I hate it all. They need their justice. And hopefully there will be a deathbed confession soon. This case had my ass tripping, y'all. <laughs> I would like to hear your thoughts on who you think the phantom is. And now's a good time for me to start asking for reviews. I would appreciate a five star if you are down with your girl. Reviews are definitely helpful. I appreciate y'all's input. And you can find me on uh, TikTok, blackgirl underscore true crime. Again, my personal TikTok is uh, ksimone93. K is spelled K-A-Y and then Simone93. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at Black Girl True Crime Podcast and Instagram, blackgirl underscore true crime podcast. Keep in mind, I'm building these platforms brick by brick. Uh, so y'all engaging would send me over the moon. And send uh, case suggestions to blackgirltruecrimepodcast at gmail.com. I'm going to have to go ahead and end this. <laughs> it is after midnight. Y'all stay safe. Drink your water. Be kind to others. And get that fucking laundry out of the corner that you've been walking past all week like it ain't there. <laughs> I will hit y'all up next week. <laughs>